Hello and welcome to another exciting episode of the Product Painters podcast, this time with Marilla Mus. She is the founder of Product People. Product People helps companies to discover and deliver great products faster. They do all the hands-on and unglamorous work of a product manager and product owner on an interim basis, meaning they send product managers that work at Product People to different companies for around 3 to 36 months. Product People is also a community of 7,000 plus product managers and is about to be one of the biggest product communities in Germany. Mirella is a technical and creative product leader who built and scaled customer-centric products, experiences and teams. On behalf of Product People, she gained experience at Tier, Zalando, Scout24, Dr. Smile, Omeo and Heikar, to name only a few. In this episode, we talk about how Mirella started Product People, how they work internally, what makes a great product manager and how they hire them. Without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Mirella. Welcome Mirella to the show. It's great to have you here. Thanks for having me, Simon. Very excited about this. I'm really excited to have you here today because you bring a very unique perspective to the table, which basically is the story of Product People, the company that you founded. And But before we start, before we do this, I would love to start with an icebreaker. What did you want to become when you were a child? I don't remember much, to be honest, about that. I, I don't have one of these stories that I want to be, I wanted to be a doctor or an astronaut. I think at some point during high school, we needed to choose something. I was leaning towards finance or um, medical uh, as a field. And my mom talked me out of it <laughs> and, and said, no, you should go into tech. Your, your uncle has been doing so well there. And, and, and remember, this was a long time ago. You didn't have all, all these unicorns and it was Romania. Um, and basically the, the way my uncle ended up in tech was at this as old school companies that were developing printers and telco infrastructure. So that, that was tech back then. And my mom to be honest, was right because uh, th this was a field where you can work anywhere uh, without needing to relicense yourself. Whereas if you graduate as a doctor out of Eastern Europe and you want to work in Germany, well, good luck with that. You need to retake a lot of exams and certifications and it's, it's not permutable. Whereas I could just show up and work in Germany um, by being in tech because you still need to adapt to the culture and you need to still understand the landscape, but it's not as hard. And similarly, if, if you need to be a, a certified professional, like in accounting or, or financial advice, um, and, and mostly leaned towards that because uh, I, I like science in general um, and I was pretty good at math. Uh, and I think that that was one of the reasons uh, why we are discussing these topics. And how did you land your first product management job? First PM role was mostly by accident. I got recruited by an ad tech company from the Bay Area, which had their development team in Bucharest. Some of their management split between Bay Area and Brussels. And I think I was lucky because I had a tech background and you need to have these five, nine SLAs and a lot of understanding of the technical complexity. Plus... I think Atec right now even more so has a bit of a reputation and appeal problem. So that there aren't a lot of PMs rushing into it. To be honest, I think I just got lucky with being um, back then in a in a, a space that just needed PM people and at a company that valued that because part of the management was in the Bay Area where this is already more developed than in Europe. 
What was your background at the time? I was leading the QA automation team for an antivirus company that currently got purchased by Northon, by currently, I think, a year or so ago. So, so there are also a German company called Avira, and they recently got acquired by Norton. Also, the company that I joined back then ended up being acquired by Pandora, which is this radio station app. That gives us a great background. So now you're the founder of Product People. How and why did you start Product People and what is Product People about? So I think I'll start with what it's about. Maybe that also explains the motivation. So our mission is to help companies discover and deliver great products faster. And we do this through two of our pillars currently. One is the product community. These are free events, inclusive. We try to bring a lot of different perspectives from a product from established product managers, senior product managers, or product leaders. And we are so far the, the biggest community in Berlin and our way being the biggest so Product People's mission is to help companies discover and deliver great products faster. We do this two ways. One, through our product management community, which is the largest in Berlin and on its way to being the largest in Germany. And through these events, we empower knowledgeable product managers or, or product leaders to share knowledge generously. And these are for free. And the way we make money is to interim product manager or product owner engagements, which last on anything between three to 36 months, but usually the missions themselves are three to six months at a certain client. And we have a lot of long existing relationships. And this is also the way we like to work to build trusting partnership that lasts longer. And that also helps us and the client because we know how they are and how they work and how we can make an impact there. So we onboard fast the line team and deliver great outcomes. So that's us. And then why did I start Product People is that I wanted to found a company. I was in between bored and not so excited about the tech scene that I found in Berlin when relocated here in 2015. And on, on a personal level, I like change, but that doesn't look very nice on your CV, right? If you job hop every three months or you, you get bored too fast. And probably the only few places where you can have that is that hyper growth companies. And so far, I know only of one in Berlin. So I like new products, new companies, new ways of working and sampling a lot of things around the way in different industries or different B2C or B2B flavor. And I didn't know what I want to spend the next 10 years doing. And usually that's the heuristic if you want to found a company. I know a lot of people are good in flipping those. But sometimes also they get stuck with them and I've seen this happen and they becoming very disappointed about that because it's not something they wanted to do for a very long time. And I spent a bit of time solo consulting or some people call it freelancing and I realized it has no end game because I missed kinship. I missed a team where I could openly discuss problems and just the fact that you can discuss this with someone helps you have solve it. So we call this rubber ducking internally. And I also wanted to share wins before going into contract work. I had managed product teams at two different companies. So I missed coaching people. I missed influencing someone's personal development or achieving outcomes to other product to people. And that's what I wanted to do. And the third reason was that I wanted to influence companies. And I noticed that while being myself an employee at some companies, I was shut off or told, well, who are you to tell us this? You weren't at this and this company before. And I noticed that I had more influence as an external person. I also had less emotional attachment and involvement in the day-to-day -day politics or fight who becomes the next boss of the next thing or who gets more headcount. Because if they take my advice, then I'm happy that I was managed to be persuasive. And if they don't take it, it's mostly on them as they paid for our advice. And secondly, 
they're going to be stuck with the consequences of their decisions. And that made me also made our life easier to explain this to clients. It's like, you can do this. And these are the intended consequences and possible unintended consequences of what would happen based on your choices, but they are your choices after all. So that in a way feels a lot better. And we are also able to operate at companies that have sometimes go to a rough patch, either politically or employee mood, because we're not that deeply immersed. Although we immerse ourselves quite well, it's still on a personal level, you know, you're not going to stay there for the next years like the employees do. And you're also not fighting with each other for who's going to lead this product team in some months. And that makes it a lot easier to focus on making an impact for our clients. That is a really cool story. So what are the reasons why companies reach out to you? It's usually mainly three scenarios. And I think all of them are related to timing. So one would be that you need to hire right away, especially after a round of funding, a B, C, or further rounds. You need to scale the product in very fast. Notice periods in Germany range from one to three months or sometimes even more, especially for leadership positions, they can be up to six months. And your investors are going to ask you in three months, what have you done for me? So you need to come up with something. And that's the case that we cover. We can onboard fast and align teams have found ways to deliver impact quite fast. Then you have the um, parental cover. So if someone is going on a paternity or paternity leave and they need to get back to their job. And we found that these are actually the nicest because the person who's leaving makes very good handover as they really care about that team. And then uh, the other part is just natural staff churn where an employee has left or is leaving the company and the replacement again takes two to nine months depending on how difficult it is to find someone you really like for that position. Less often we have temporary initiatives. So within the, the same company, they have for five months or six more work for a certain stream that they can handle. So from there, they can spin off a separate team or they want help in appraising the product team or the processes. And this uh, is more the advisory coaching consulting side. But, but, but most of our day-to-days are hands-on and we do bring the advisory and coaching part for best practices, sometimes also with the hands-on work, but that's not the primary reason we get taken on. How many people are you at Product People? Uh, so currently we're we're about 20. What kind of roles do they have or what kind of experience do they have? We range from people leadership roles, which would be at this time me and Suba who joined us from Amazon, where he led also a team about 20. And then we have senior PMs, senior technical PMs, technical PMs, PMs, associates. And even within the associate PM and senior levels, we have two levels. So you can be associate one or associate two. We also have a way to train people to go into product management through our internship. Uh, we're also looking at a fellowship program right now because the internship was for recent graduates, but we also noticed that it's successful for people who want to switch careers, for example, from marketing or even surprisingly, we had two people who switched from neuroscience and are very good, especially at some user research topic or just thinking in experiments because this is what the position entails. We talked before and you mentioned that you have a team to discuss things is really important. Can you speak more about that? Our teams are organized currently in clusters, and we also have a lot of uh, shadowing. So, for example, a senior PM or a PM most likely will have an associate or more associates and interns to support them, even by shadowing or helping with a wide range of smaller tasks. And this is because we think that product management is an apprenticeship and a school, and you don't get to be good at that by doing a 
online course, but are actually working hands-on and being immersed in the realities of our clients. And we also help people when possible to self-select on which clients they're going to work on or to round up their experience. If, for example, someone has too much B2B or too much corporate experience to have them at a mid-sized company or even at a startup and then do some B2C. And that so far has been um, very well appreciated by the team because once in a while we have some clients that are popular just because people know them. So initially, a lot of people wanted to help us on Scout24 from inside the company because we were running a lot of A-B tests and because it's the biggest real estate portal in Germany. So everyone who has ever lived in Germany knows it. Um, later on, Tier became popular because scooters ended up being all over the place. And some of the uh, people wanted to work on this and see how it's like inside the company and so on and so forth. Or other people have health tech interests or media or subscription apps. So that is also interesting for us because we try to have some spare capacity for knowledge sharing and handovers. And another thing that we do is we let people take uninterrupted vacations. So this means that for us to still provide service for our clients, someone needs to take over. So we will onboard a new person do this vacation coverage, not bother the person who's on vacation, and then have good documentation notes and a handover back when the PM comes. And this enables us to take vacations of two to three weeks at a time. And we've had this successfully at multiple clients. So that is when you switch, that is when like one person from product people switches the client? No. So one of the main use cases is vacations, right? Because People want to take vacations. And the way this is solved in consultancies or agencies sometimes is to the whole agency taking off in the last two weeks of the year. But I'm never a fan of that because maybe you want to travel some other time and life happens. And I think for us to be successful, employees are also one of the stakeholders that we need to make happy. So we have, let's say, four stakeholders. One is the communities, employees, the clients. And let's say the company as a whole, because it needs to be profitable and continue growing. This is what shareholders expect. So that way we can let people go on vacation whenever they want, ensure service for the client and make ourselves more resilient as a company in case someone gets hit by a bus. Hopefully not, but we will already have quite a lot of documentation and knowledge within the company because prior to the vacation, the client facing person has already been sharing some knowledge and we have a standardized way of also keeping notes and making visible what's the work there and which are the contact people. We also sync our calendar. So we have a few things that we already know and we can catch up pretty fast. And then secondly, it also relieves the burden of, okay, I need to time my vacations at a certain time when the client engagement ends, but that's always super unpredictable because their full-time employee may be having a visa delay or decides to not join at all, or there are like so many things outside of our control that we thought, okay, the people need to know that if they want to go on a hiking trip and this timing works with their friends, they should be able to plan that outside of what's happening. Could you speak more about how you share the knowledge and how you internally take time to discuss and share problems? You mentioned the rubber ducking. Could you go into more detail what that is? Yeah, so that's pretty simple. Everyone in the company has a line manager, so you can discuss with that person or you can discuss with the people that are there. For things that need a lot more internal coordination, we have also our own 15-minute stand-up 
for that specific client. We also have a shared channel that we sort of scramble the name so that in case you work from a coworking space, you don't see that this is talked about on the Zalando channel, but it just has a nickname. And we also have some Google Drives where only people working on that client get access to it. So let's say they're doing a competitor analysis together or they're reviewing each other, A-B test documentation. All of that is done collaboratively. And the same if people find something interesting or have done something interesting somewhere, they can say, hey, this is uh, how we did this uh, mirror board to align on some stuff, or this is how we did the user flow there. It's, it's a bit different. And all of that is available internally, of course, with a lot of security and partitioning things. And also we have some channels where people just say, well, I'm doing platform product management. The client is this B2B and themselves have a lot of B2B clients. So you can't really release or do A-B tests or things like that. What should be the release process for various cases? When do we do a canary deployment? Where do we do a stage rollout when we do this or that, right? So it's kind of a complicated technical and a bit of policy questions because with B2B clients, you can't really mess around that much as you would do with end users when you want to just test something. So we came up with a process for that client that worked for them. And we consulted with other people internally that had a technical background or have seen this done elsewhere. And they're basically just sharing, hey, this is what we want to propose. This is the problem and getting a lot of input on that. We also have a biweekly sharing session where people present a client or specific challenge they solved at that client and what was the method, what were the artifacts and asking a lot of questions or sometimes more generic things on how do you notice and handle politics because you want to be beyond politics <laughs> usually, right? But at the same time, be very much aware of them in case you get in between some bullets being fired by some teams at each other and you're somehow part of a team that's being fired at. And as I say, it's a generic thing and it happens sometimes or how do you handle it when some of the people at the client are underperforming or are not delivering on their promises or we suspect on that? And how do you communicate that internally to them? What is the escalation path? What is the way to handle this very transparently? And that, that also fits with the client's culture and with the situation there. Because that's, I think, one of the biggest challenge of product management is that all these things that you read in blog posts or in books, it's all ideal cases, or maybe someone who wrote it saw five different setups, but real life is super messy, as we've all known. I think that's super unique about product people that you can actually share and keep learning with actual people in an actual call and, and share your real life struggle and, and experience as you go. I think that's something that a regular PM job is missing. You always have to pretend that you know everything already <laughs> and basically stopped learning, right? Yeah, and this is also part of our culture. I always tell people, you know, we should be the first ones that find out if something is going wrong or just vent. We also have a channel where people just can go and vent and you must only vent in caps lock. And the channel that I also have starred there and I read all the time, you know, this happens and you don't want to go to a meeting and, and be toxic. So it's better to put that somewhere. And it ends up with also a lot of funny comments and things. We also have a strict deletion policy on that one. So, you know, like something doesn't end up hurting you later down the line when Slack will have some security incident and leak everyone's messages, which didn't happen yet, but you never know. So um, all of that is taken care of. But this is quite fun 
Uh, and we're also seeing companies the way they are, not the way they say they are on their hiring boards or through their interviews, because no one bothers to, let's say, uh, sugarcoat things for contractors. They're like, here's the mess, help us fix the mess. Or here's the big, hairy, ambitious things we promised to our investors. How do we make this happen? And I think that's also fun. And most clients are quite direct. There are also some clients which culturally are very sensitive and you need to have like another layer of communication on how to do that. But with most, you can just be yourself and that also helps. I would love to experience that at some point. <laughs> What is the process for a company to hire someone from product people? Well, with Tier is pretty easy because we have a framework agreement in place. So it would be just one pager to add or extend or remove people. But for a normal company, we generally have a 15-minute call with them. And sometimes that's it. And the rest can be an offer by email and I send them a document to digitally sign. Sometimes they also want to talk with the PM. Sometimes the PM already knows them and they just come in requesting a certain person. Or we also have an internal incentive structure if someone brings a client. And we've had so far one employee that brought two clients that I had never spoken with before. And I want to encourage this practice because most of the time people choose people. And I also want the team to have an incentive to stay and help grow product people. So I've tried to align our incentives of the company with the employee's incentives. And then it's the whole uh, budget, what's going to be the allocation, because we do between two and four days at the client. And when should that be? When should we start? And then just setting up the whole kickoff uh, process of accounts, agreeing on uh, what is success, agreeing on what's the expected way to communicate, what are the availability days, marking that in the client's calendar so that People don't accidentally invite you on a Friday where you're not there. So a lot of it, it's also to some degree process, which we try to improve and make play bookable. And I was very excited when we had an associate who had just joined us for since two days. And then we had him shadow at the client. And I saw his Slack profile at that client that it was already as in our playbook, stating availability, stating the main contact person. Because if there are more people there on the same stream, we don't want to confuse stakeholders and there should be one person that they approach to. If our PMs are on different stream, then that is fine because then they will have their own stakeholders and their own goals. So all of that is becoming easier and easier for us to do. I think that's a perfect segue to the hiring process of product people. How do you approach hiring PMs for product people? And what do you look out for in a PM when you hire? So I think with one thing, we were quite lucky that the PMs approach us because Sometimes people approach me about going into freelancing and I try to explain like what's the difference because there's a legal term and there's the term that most people use to define contract work or interim work. So I say if you want to do interim work and not have to hunt for your own food and deal with all of these things that you miss 100% of your revenue when you're on vacation and you need to solve bureaucracy and all this stuff, a consultancy or a place like that can work. And some people also come to us for career progression. Since we have all of these very defined granular product steps and a cadence for it. And for example, for the internship, the cadence stops at three months. That's the maximum length we have for an internship. And with some people, we've had the case where we made them an offer to jump even a step and become associate PM2 after the internship. Our first employee jumped already maybe three or four steps, but also because we grew from one to 20 people in a year and a half and then she developed quite fast but other people also ended up being pm1 or also having started as an intern or associate too so that 
has worked quite well. Others started as a product manager, now they're senior PM. So that's another part that we offer. So going back to this, during the interview process, we try to understand on which of our levels the person fits. And then we have two salary grids, the, the German salary grid and the outside of Germany one, and then figuring out what would be the contractual set up for outside of Germany. We are also experimenting with remote.com, which is an employer of record. So that is the setup. In general, people just apply or contact us directly. Once in a while, we have a speaker that's very interesting or, or someone in our network shows up and we ask them. But we've been very lucky for people just approaching us that they want to work with us and going through the process. Uh, so the process is tailored to our principles. And what we saw, it's easy for the people who fare very well and promote fast and try to find more of these people. So our principles are low maintenance, high results, because that was one of the things whenever we were getting high praise from the clients is like, we want a no hassle person, you know, it's just like, just do, I don't want to explain things to you. I don't want to bother. Also, some like more high touch updates or more, let's see what this person is doing and CC me in emails and stuff. Most of the clients just want our CPOs of, or head of product or founders or directors who just want this done and have some way of measuring what this and done means. And they don't want to bother with people. So if someone is very high maintenance, then that's already not going to work well with us <laughs> and with the client. Then the second principle is solve for the client. So sometimes the client says they want this, but they actually need that. Or you need to reverse engineer what they actually told you to do from what they actually want and sometimes even do a bit of a thing that you think it's wrong just because the client needs to get this trust or you need to walk them through how you saw that this is wrong and how it can be done better so this solving for the client mentality and always looking to over deliver because so far we have 45 percent of clients coming existing or recommended by other clients or other people we work with at the client so doing above expectation is actually a cost saver for us because we don't need to bother with people. That's why I said that the process to get us in, sometimes people say, well, you hire them, they must be good. Can you send someone and when? And that's my favorite. <laughs> it's like, and others try to appraise the person as if they were hiring them for 10 years, go through some dystopian HR process. But we've had less and less in that. And we're also pushing back because at the end of it, we have a two weeks cancellation. So why bother so much with all the bureaucracy and the cancellation is on both ends, right? The other part is spread knowledge generously. And I wanted to include this for us internally, but also for the community so that the community always remains a pillar of product people. And fourth is be excellent and candid to each other. I wanted to be very direct as a company, but not end up being an asshole culture as some companies in Berlin are or some bigger companies like Amazon are known for being cutthroats, right? I want us to be on, on top of things, very direct, but at the same time, spare people's feelings. And when you think that would happen, just rather message them on Slack or have a one-to-one -one rather than berate them in some public channel or, or say something. And I've noticed that people do this very well, that they point out mistakes, but having these mistakes about the document or something someone is writing, not about them. And this is also going quite well because it encourages people to be vulnerable or to admit to things. And I also admit to a lot of things in our internal updates just to show people that we should be transparent about fuck-ups. And the fifth is aim for long-term profitability in growth and growth because we are not a venture-funded business. And that is also fine because we can master our own fate. And there are also a lot of very successful companies that have endured a lot more than the well-funded 
BC ones. So if you look at the old school consultancies, some are 70 years old and have managed that without taking any VC money and being recognized on their specific niche. For example, I'm thinking of McKinsey or BCG for strategy. And ThoughtWorks, I think it's 30 years old and got publicly listed, which offers the whole tech product something as a team, plug and play. And I think those are pretty good examples. Um, I had a friend, I met a person through Techstars where we are mentoring, and she was joking that actually all these VC money don't go to you, uh, don't go to us as a founder, end up going to various agencies and to AWS and to agencies tooling and some other things. And I said, yeah, well, you have the payout when when you end up in a series ZD or when you sell it. Yes. And she was saying, yes, but before that, all of you other people get it. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. How do you interview for high result or low maintenance? We don't interview that much. So we've noticed that before talking with people, it's best to send them a service. And we do this for all the roles. That has helped us to do two things. Basically, not be that biased when we screen CVs, right? Because you're just looking at a Google form with a person's answer of, let's say, give an example of your most difficult or cringe stakeholder interactions you've had. And then there are some people who actually spin a positive story into that and kind of try to make it difficult. And there are others who are just very honest and raw about it. And I had this insight also from a comment that Jeff Bezos had when allowing people to write text in product reviews on Amazon that you can say from a few sentences if you relate to that person and if they're credible and if their way of writing is going to fit in. And this way, we also see how articulated people are, how strong their examples. So we ask them some things that they would anyway need to be asked in an interview, aside from like personal sensitive data. And we also do round robin reviews of these surveys. So there's always not the same person reviewing it to ensure that more of us have this skill set. And then the people who end up towards the end of the funnel are have somehow interacted with more product people. So that is the first stage. And depending on seniority, there's a, usually a screening call, quite short as well. And after that, we have a case assignment that is on a fictive problem. So people know that we're not, some of them are even set in the future, so that people know we're not going to reuse this as a client. But again, we want to see how they think and how they put things in writing when you get a vague product problem, which we sometimes get. And the case is structured on the three type of things that they need to be successful here. One is learning things very fast and being able to orient themselves in a very new environment and put a structure around that. And the second is how do they pitch to management or C-level folks? And then the third one is how would they break down a complex initiative for developers with even like write a sample user stories. And we've been surprised how many people come in with a few years of product management experience and couldn't write a user story or couldn't make a deck without 20 typos or just things that you would think are just basic hygiene factors for the role. You can also just Google how a user story looks like. I think with that, we've been very lucky to have a pretty good processing at at the end. For the cases that we think are done well, we also invite them to present this to two or three members of our team so that we can also act a bit like how stakeholders would try to fully spin your thing or ask more deeper questions about some things where we felt it wasn't fully covered or something's puzzle us of the choices the person made. I had someone on the show, actually the first one that I interviewed, and he talked about that you can pretty nicely interview for technical skills, like writing user story, for example. 
but you can't really interview for soft skills and people skills. And he thought sort of that's like the really two important things of the product manager that he's also really good at people skills. Do you have any process for interviewing for the soft or people skills of product management? Well, this is why we have the screening calls in between that we have for associate onwards. And then this is also how we have the presentation. Because in the presentation, you're going to be asked or we're going to point out that something maybe doesn't make sense. And some people get very defensive or don't know how to handle things that are not already planned or that are not already there. So, for example, let's say you present something and say, well, now the CEO comes in and they said that they made this super big B2B deal and you need to scrape this and change your whole proposal into that. Like, how would you go about, how would you respond to this situation? And there are a few other things that, for example, we could ask them, like, how do these metrics that you propose fit in with, with actually your idea? Would you have chosen others? Now, in hindsight, would you choose something more? And I think with that, you can already see. And we are also a distributed first company. So, for example, I don't look so much in people who can smooth or be super smooth and so on. I'm more interested in people who can write and communicate very well in writing because that actually scales well as a company. And we've seen this at more mature companies like Zalando, uh, who has adapted process somewhat from Amazon, where, for example, product managers need to create a PR FAQ, so one of these fake press releases, and go through an internal process of having that initiative approved. And only after that, the company will invest people and other type of support for you. And that a lot of the conversations there don't happen in meetings, but happen in documents. So people will find your documents, comment on them, or will initiate a discussion on that. And if you invite people to something, they're going to ask you, but there is there a document around it? Or you already need to put that in the agenda. And I thought that this is healthier for a company on that side to minimize all the coordination effort. And we want to, as well, have a way to scale that. So I've had, for example... Someone that I rejected that survey stage that said, well, I like more being in person and I like going to someone's desk and talking to them. And I was like, well, first of all, we don't know if that is going to help us if there are more uh, waves of Corona or lockdowns. And second, it doesn't scale. I understand that it's easier for you than writing because it is, but that doesn't help, right? It helps in very small companies. It probably helps at 10 people start up where you kind of need everyone hands on deck until you norm, form, and create a bit of a culture. But most of our clients are also, to some degrees, companies who have gotten some funding or some round of funding and are starting to grow. And when you grow, you need to have processes and start writing things down because else you're going to lose them when someone is sick or leaves the company. That is so interesting. I would love to keep going, but we're slowly coming to an end. So I have a few more wrap-up questions that I would love to ask you before we wrap up. The first one is, do you have an, an example of the most common mistakes you see PMs do? Oh, there are so many of them. And I think the mistake varies by company size. I would say a lot of them don't focus enough on supporting their boss. So I would say communication, but communication is so vague and wide. They don't know how to support their boss and how to communicate their work. And this is also something we had internally, like someone who performs very well. But it's not a person who likes bragging. And I think none of us here likes bragging. But you need to be aware that for your boss to look good, you also need to present what your team has done and also to just make the team proud of their work. 
And I remember one of my favorite engagements was with Omio in 2019. And there the engineering manager, someone very senior coming from Microsoft, and she was all the time, what we expect from the PM is to give us an update on metrics and to make these metrics visible to the rest of the company so that the company sees they were also a newer pillar focused back then on expanding. So the rest of the company needed to see why this pillar is important, what impact it's making on the metrics and on the reach of the company. And the PM, they saw as mega responsible, not only for prioritizing the initiatives with the biggest impact, considering we also had a lot of dependencies and stakeholders. So that took a, a bit of thinking and understanding what can block you where and what is easier to do than others, but as well as making that very visible. And it was a super good learning from the team. Another place at Zalando, for example, engineers are expected to show an understanding of metrics and business goals in order to promote to the next step. And then doing the same process helped me get a lot of buy-in from the team because I was able to justify very fast, okay, we do this experiment because this and that, and this is the division's North Star metric, and this is part of the P1 initiative. So this is how it ties in with the sole story of what we're trying to do short and midterm here. And I think a lot of PMs don't do that. They just get trapped in these meetings, Slack messages, and writing tickets, but that's not what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to deliver an impact, even if it's not the impact that you think should be done, because sometimes the company has shorter term priorities than your boss as well. You need to very well defend the investment from that because you're the one in, uh, let's say, wasting everyone's time, right? There's the whole dev team. Sometimes you have legal customer care coordination design marketing depending on what you're working on and you need to be very good at communicating why your boss has made a good choice to let you invest everyone's time and the company money and potentially losing out on other opportunities for this thing that you're doing right now you mentioned some product management books on your website but do you have a personal favorite product management book maybe a book that you recently read that you would recommend for our listeners I mean, aside from the obvious ones, I like Teresa Torres with continuous discovery habits. I think the main insight was like figure out how to do the talk to your customers as part of your weekly schedule and not have discovery be like this big bang event. And I think that's a really interesting insight and kind of mirrors this transition that companies 10 years or more ago were having these big waterfally things. And to some degree, the product discovery has also been a bit more waterfally because just the coordination effort, even if recruiting users or preparing what type of survey or what type of approach you are doing for a specific discovery initiative. I think that one is pretty cool. I have recently also liked Obviously Awesome from April Dunford. I think it's more about positioning, but it ties in with jobs to be done, which is also one of my favorite uh, methods for especially B2B clients. And whenever things are too lofty and too fuzzy of why we're doing this, because she touches upon the jobs to be done a lot, but in a different way. And the other insight is that companies compare you in context. And one of the examples was that famous opera player um, did the gig in the subway and someone even called the police to complain about the noise. And then usually the person had the ticket sold out and booked out and so on. And that was the context of consumption where someone, some people value something and they don't. And it's similar also a bit with the jobs to be done approach because when you're in a low income country, people telco credits competed with sweets because teenagers will think, will I buy a Coke or will I buy more? Will I extend my data plan? So I can go on Facebook or TikTok. 
and you can imagine, right, that they wouldn't have thought that Coca-Cola is competing with TikTok to some degree in these markets, but that's how it is. Do you have any last famous words before we wrap up? <laughs> no, I, I wouldn't want to have like last words are for dead people. So I, I enjoyed being uh, around for much, much longer. So if someone made it this far, thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Simon, for organizing and hope to catch up with you soon. Thank you, Mirila. It was a wonderful discussion. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you and see you. Bye bye. There you have it. Another insightful episode. I found the idea so fascinating to work at a company while still being able to share learnings and get input from your fellow product management colleagues. And it never gets boring to hear what qualities a product manager should bring to the table these days. In the show notes for this episode, you will find links to the books Product People and Mirilla personally recommends. They all make for a great read. You'll also find the link to the Product People website in case you want to apply as we heard, they look for many different roles and experiences. As always, I also picked some quotes that I found personally interesting from this conversation. You can find all this on our website at productpioneerspodcast.com. Again, thanks everyone who helped to contribute to this episode. Thank you, Thais, for editing. Mirella, thanks again for your insights and for taking the time. And of course, Code for providing the space. I hope to see you in the next episode. Until then... Have a good one. Bye-bye.